2: Hey, how are you? Oh, so good to hear your voice. Uh, I just want to welcome you back to Super Soul. I'm excited to share your new book with everybody called Letters to the Sons of Society, A Father's Invitation to Love, Honesty, and Freedom. What a beautiful title. It's actually a clarion call... To Black sons and all sons, actually, all families, an invitation to love, honesty, and freedom. But I know you wanted to speak directly to your son. So congratulations, Shaka, on another really thoughtful, meaningful, beautifully written book.
1: Uh, thank you so much. I am truly just honored and excited to be here to really talk about all the things that, you know, the book really reflects, you know, the love and the honesty and really the freedom, because I think you only get free when you address what it means to love and to be honest with yourself.
2: Whoa, that's a powerful quote. You only get free when you're able to address what it means to love. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> <laughs> you come up with some good ones. Uh,
1: thank you so much.
2: Before we talk about Letters to Sons Society, uh, which is now available everywhere, books are so, I want you to remind our listeners of your story. Many of you who listen to Super Soul will remember my first interview with Shaka um, had such a profound impact on me. I've been talking about him for years. I even wrote about it in the book that I did last year with Dr. Perry on trauma, what happened to you. But for anyone listening who's not heard your story, can you tell us briefly the circumstances of your conviction at age 19 for second degree murder and then spending 19 years in prison, seven of those, in total, in solitary confinement?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that for that question and the reintroduction. You know, I always reflect back to what my dream was for myself growing up, uh, which was to be a doctor. And unfortunately, you know, I grew up in a household that was abusive. I ran away when I was around 14 years old. And I was this naive, you know, kid. You know, I was an honor roll, scholarship student with all the potential in the world. And unfortunately, I got seduced into the crack cocaine trade and experienced all the horrors that came with that culture, up to my own self being shot when I was 17 years old. And tragically and unfortunately, I didn't even know that therapy was an option or that it was something that I should consider. And 16 months later, the trauma from that experience erupted at about 2 o'clock in the morning, When I unfortunately shot and tragically uh, caused a man's death, I was subsequently sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison and eventually served a total of 19 years, seven of those years being in solitary confinement. And it was in that environment that I began what I now look at as the second chapter of my life.
2: Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break.
0: No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world famous barbecue and Tex Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts.
2: Well, you know, I always say your story is one that is beyond just inspiration and transformation because you have now helped countless others along the way. Let me, let me just list some of what you've achieved since... You're released from prison. So in 11 years, in 11 years since being released from prison and having one of the guards as you're leaving say to you, you'll be back in six months, you have become a best-selling author of the book Writing My Wrongs, a former fellow at MIT's Media Lab, a TED Talk sensation, may I say, an entrepreneur, an activist, a C-suite executive, you had another child, one of your greatest, grandest accomplishments, your son, Sekou. What would you say has been the driving force that
1: allowed you to accomplish all of this in 11 years? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the driving force for me uh, really came about as I started to heal the little boy inside of me. You know, I was a very curious, very precocious child. And a funny thing is when I, when I would get on Punishment, I would read the encyclopedias because my parents would remove the TVs. Um, and it's one of the reasons I'm kind of good at Jeopardy by default. Um, <laughs> but it was really understanding that life becomes a lot more interesting the more curious you become. And so a lot of those experiences I've had since I've been out were terrifying But I was curious enough to overcome the fear and just step into the moment.
2: So let's talk about Letters to the Sons of Society, uh, which is available wherever you want to buy books. In the book, you alternate writing letters to your two sons, 29-year-old Jay and 10-year-old Sekou. So your sons are 19 years apart, born doing very different points in the trajectory of your life. How would you describe your relationship with each son?
1: So my relationship with Jay started with me mentally making up a narrative that just wasn't true. I thought that when I got out of prison, Jay and I would have one of those scenic movie embraces. Right. He was 19 years old when I got out. Okay. And I just thought we would would ride off into the sunset, father and son, I had gained all this wisdom from watching so many broken boys come through the system, and I knew that I had the antidote to that, and I wanted to pour that into my son, and I thought we would do all the things that fathers dream of and imagine doing with their sons, and I never stopped to ask Jay what he wanted. And so early on, our relationship became very complex to the point of deep, deep conflict, And today we are still navigating some of the fallout from those early days. But what I've learned how to do is to really just be present and to honor where he's at on his journey Mm -hmm. and to ensure that he knows that I am just available as he grows and evolves. And my hope is always that our story will evolve into one with a beautiful ending With Sekou, it's different because, you know, I've been there from day one. I've raised Sekou, you know, alongside his mother in a co-parenting situation where a lot of his rearing with me has been me as a single dad. And I have been so blessed to watch this amazing little human being, you know, just navigate the world. And so I'm able to pour into him daily. He's able to pour into me He has opened up dimensions of me that I didn't even, I couldn't even possibly have imagined for myself. Uh, The way that I'm able to show up in love is really a result of being gifted this beautiful little human being. And so, you know, those experiences are dramatically different. And what I hope for one day is that the experiences can grow closer and closer in proximity.
2: It's brilliant how you alternate between the two. Uh, writing letters to Jay and then writing letters to Sekou. Was writing these letters healing for you?
1: Yes, they healed so many parts of me that I didn't even know needed healing.
2: Did you start writing the letters as, oh, I'm going to write letters to my son? Did you start writing the letters as as with the idea of a book in mind? Or were you just bored during the pandemic and were trying to (laughs) figure out how to use your mind?
1: Actually, no, that's actually funny. I originally started the book. The idea for the book was I have been, you know, fortunate to mentor young men all over the country and outside of the country. And I get a chance to see the story that no one sees about these young men, this yearning to be understood, this yearning to be seen, this yearning to be loved this yearning to know how to love. And then I had this moment, this kind of reckoning, where I said to myself, all of these sons exist in both of my sons. And I have an opportunity to memorialize the moments that we're in, but also to explain to them how I came to be and as a result how they came to be.
2: Wow. Wow. And it all came together as perfectly as it did because of your intention. I'm, I'm convinced of that. You write that you believe that the greatest power that drives our world is the love that we have for our children. And you say something on page 43 that strikes me so for all fathers who have been... Separated from their sons through either divorce or bad relationships, and aren't able to co parent as well as you and Ebony have been able to do with Sekou. You say there are very few courts or judges who, all things equal, land upon the father as the most appropriate parent. And so we have learned to take the second road, to acquiesce to the image of us as less than, as inadequate to the task of love. We are not inadequate to it. We yearn for it, but so often we find ourselves out here in the garage of our lives, away from the main rooms, stealing ourselves for either loss or re-entry. Whew, that struck me so profoundly, because I thought, wow, that's right, because society just automatically assumes that, okay, there's a problem in the marriage or in the relationship. It's the mother who, you know, is favored. So tell us about that paragraph that you wrote on page 43. What was going on that you came to this realization? I, I just love the way you phrased it. We yearn for it. We are not inadequate to it. We yearn for it. But so often we find ourselves out here in the garage of our lives. I think you were in the garage at the time, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I was actually sitting in the garage and, and Sekou's mom was dropping him off. But, but you know, but there, there's always these moments when you know he rushes into my arms and he hugs and you know we lay on the couch and we watch you know our favorite TV shows. And what I realized when it when it really registered to me what it means to be fully available in love, it came in the most mundane way possible, which was when I'm doing his laundry, Wow, and I'm folding up those little socks and I'm folding up those t-shirts. And these are the images of a dad that isn't shown, especially a black dad. Right. You know, we get the James Evans from Good Time Dad. Right. You know, we get the comedic dads. But the intentional loving and nurturing dads. Like we don't see that. You know, I write little letters and put them in, you know, his lunchbox. We don't you see that. You know, when that, I'm dad. preparing his meals, and we eat different, like my, like Sekou is vegetarian, and I'm not. And so the details of love for me are in those moments. And what I think about is, you know, Father's Day, we get the tie and we get the socks or we get the tool belt. And we're typically getting things that's utilized to fix other people's things that they've broken. Yeah. Um, but we don't get those moments of just acknowledgement and appreciation And, you know, I am really fortunate, Oprah, in the sense that all of my friends who I consider like my closest male friends, they are incredible, loving, nurturing dads. And it exists in my family as well. And so, you know, it's in those moments where we just sit and we're like, does the world see us for who we truly are?
2: I can tell you what you're saying makes the hairs on my head rise because I recall years ago on The Oprah Show— Um, doing a show about parenting, single parenting. And we had a black father on, which was always my idea of allowing people to see the humanity of people of color. You know, I used to get a lot of criticism from black folks who say, you need to do a show about black this and black that and black that. Mm -hmm. And my feeling was always, no, we need to show that we are part of humanity like everybody else and let people see that. So we're doing a show on single parenting and I'd said to the producers, let's just find a single black father. And we showed the image, Shaka, I think this was like in the 90s of a black father reading to his daughters. Mm. And the, the responses that we got to this, this is long but this is, this is long before you know Twitter and social media, like people calling up and actually writing letters saying they had never seen that before wow. and didn't know that black fathers read to their children. Mm. So I was just saying to one of my producers just yesterday that what we need is I love, you know, showing on own stories about black excellence and movies about black excellence and empire and all of that. I said, but what we need are actually really more stories where we see black men in particular doing just normal things, being with their kids. And the thing, the image that you just created of, you know, folding the socks and laying on the sofa together and being a part of each other's lives in a way that expresses our humanity and everybody sees, the hum- sees themselves in that humanity. I-, I think that's profound.
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, it's, it's this thing now that, you know, it's become so common to hear we need to change the narrative around black men and black fathers. And for a long time, I believed that to be true. But the more I begin to think about it, I don't think we need to change the narrative. I think we have to expand the narrative. And we have to include all of who we are. Right.
0: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Something should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen, because...
2: Well, you know, people don't often write letters these days. But I know that during your 19 years in prison, handwritten letters became your saving grace, in particular that letter from Jay. So let's talk about the letter you got in prison from your own son, Jay.
1: Yeah. um, So that letter I received from Jay, I was actually in solitary confinement. And my dad would, whenever he had Jay over, he would sit him down and they would write letters together together and send them to me. And my dad always made sure Jay had his own envelope and you know he would send his letters uh, separately. And I opened this envelope with enthusiasm cuz you know I'm hearing from my son and hearing from home and when I began to read my heart literally dropped because he said to me dad I know why you're in prison. My mom told me for murder. Dad, please don't kill again. Jesus watches what you do. That letter literally broke me, and it broke me open. And I realized that I owed my son, one, an explanation for why I was in prison, but more importantly, I owed him a dad that he can be proud of. And so what I did is I challenged myself. I began to journal, and I began to unpack all of the experiences I had that led me to that moment And it started with that big question, you know, around how did I get here? Hmm. And so through that journaling, I realized I had never completed anything in my life other than the GED. And that's when I challenged myself to write my first book. So that that letter from Jay just, you know, tore me apart. But it also put me back together.
2: So your son's letter had a major impact, but. Your The letters from your, your own father, I think, perhaps sustained you in a way that only now you recognize what that did for you. Especially when you say, his words gave me a source of protection and love and the building blocks of manhood when I needed them most. So you all started writing, you and your father started writing to each other once you were in prison and you could say things in the letters that you had not been able to say to each other face to face, correct?
1: Yes, so my dad wrote me for the entirety of the 19 years I was in prison. Wow. And They weren't just these kind of, hey, keep your head up, you know, here's what's happening in the world. They were deep probing letters they were confessionals at times they were comedic you know outtakes on life and they always were full of love and what what i've come to understand now you know as a as a dad and also as a man nearing 50 years old is how heartbreaking that had to be for my father to have to build a relationship with his son that had been broken through these letters, but our exchanges were at times heated. You know, they were accusatory. I know I wrote some that were mean-spirited, but my dad never shrunk from that. He never shrunk from my inquiry. You know, I could ask him anything, and mm. he would respond. And those things were really like healing and just, you know, real guiding forces for me.
2: Well, so... L- when we get back to talking about specifically letters to the sons of society, after you were released from prison during a disagreement, this was such a powerful moment. Your son, Jay, who you'd had these visions of coming home to and the great embrace and the father and son going off into the sunset, doing beautiful things together, Jay threatened to stab you and you wanted to retaliate. Reading it, I thought, whoa, that is a manifestation of, the deepest wounds between a father and son. How did you two get to that point?
1: I think, well, I'll, I'll say what I feel responsible for. I think when I came home that there were two things happening. One, there was the story of who I was before prison that gets regurgitated, remixed, and retold over and over again uh, by family and friends. right. And then there was the story I was telling myself of how I would show up as a dad, I'm going to come home and I'm going to right the ship, I'm going to make sure, you know, he's not doing the things that I was doing at 19, and I never really created space for us to just be. And so it went from this kind of accelerated idea to me actually overcompensating and you know, Jay would call me for money or, you know, he would just be somewhere and be like, hey, come pick me up. And I would drop everything I was doing and go accommodate that without us actually having built a relationship. Mm-hmm. And the moment that I Well, he was probably using at, it,
2: too. He was probably using it, too, because, like, you've been oh, gone all absolutely. these years and so you owe me.
1: Yeah, there was definitely uh, the guilt tripping and the sense yeah. of entitlement. And that's, I think, where things really escalated. Uh, Specifically that day, he had asked for some money for a driver's license, to pay for his driver's license. And I had just gave him money like a week before for the same thing. And when I questioned him about it, he got very defensive, and then it just escalated from there. And what I've come to understand, you know, through my writing of that piece— what I was triggered by was, wasn't so much of a fear of him actually doing what he said, but about an idea that he had threatened me, because the last time I had been physically harmed came from somebody threatening me and then following up on that threat. And so I realized I had this compounded PTSD from you know, my experience on the street that had never got resolved. And then from being on prison yards where violence is the normal way of doing business. And so, you know, I found myself back in a space that I never thought that I can be in in terms of how I was thinking about uh, dealing with Jay.
2: Yeah, that thought of, well, one of us has to
1: go. Yeah, you know, that, that, that was my immediate thought. Like, we can't, I can't exist in a space where I'm threatened and we have to share space at my parents' house, at my mom's store, amongst family members, and, you know, when you survive prison, you survive the streets, you know, at least when I survived those things, like, I made it up in my mind that nobody's ever going to hurt me again if I can help it. Or disrespect and, me. Or uh, disrespect that disrespect, disrespect me,
2: thing is huge, isn't it? I mean, so many young boys have been shot in the street because they felt like somebody disrespected them. So that that's a—the disrespect
1: thing is a real trigger point, is it not— it's a major trigger point, point. and you know I've thought, you know I've, I've thought long and hard about why, and it's something it's something that you shared with me in our first conversation, and the way that you phrased it is that we just want to be seen. Yeah, and I think what happens with black boys specifically, and one of the reasons I think that you know gun violence is so, you know, rampant in our communities is because It has been the way that we found for us to be seen. And it's rooted in fear. And disrespect that goes unaddressed really raises up the fear face-to-face, that if you don't stand up for yourself, if you don't go to the extreme to defend your honor, then you are that afraid little boy that people think you are.
2: Yeah. So... Has Jay read the book?
1: He has chosen not to read it um, yet.
2: Is that hurtful to you?
1: When I first talked to him about it, he said he would read it. And I I didn't even realize how important and how exciting that was for me. And when he called me back and he said he's not interested in reading it, it was heartbreaking. Mm. Because I don't know if we can get to a space of full healing without him really understanding my truth. And so I wait and just hope for a better outcome. What allowed you
2: to be this vulnerable? Because just like in your first book, you go all the way there on everything, tough issues our society is grappling with, racism and mental health and masculinity. You also share your own struggles with addiction and trauma and even sexual abuse. What what, what what has allowed you to be this vulnerable? I mean, geez, I think you need to teach you need we need an open class with you teaching this not just to black and brown people of color, but everybody. you know this this idea of being able to speak your truth and allow yourself to be vulnerable is not something that any men in society have been open to for the most part.
1: You know, what, what, what I believe, you know, I, I believe that our journeys are divinely ordered. And I think that all the things that we go through in life shape us in some way. One of the things I have come to understand about my, my experience in prison was when you are stripped of everything, you're stripped of your name, you're stripped of your clothing, you're stripped of the dignity that comes with you consistently being strip-searched. It is the most naked and vulnerable feeling to be in a room nude amongst a gang of strange people and Mm. being probed and prodded and all the things. is so dehumanizing. And in order to survive that, with any sense of just that you're still a human being, You have to find a way to ground yourself. And so after you've been stripped of all that, you have a choice of allowing that to forever disconnect you from your being. Or for me, in my case, was to say, you know what? I've been stripped of everything. And I have to take ownership of all that I have left. And what I have left is my heart and my mind and my truth. And when I can express that, like it's, for one, for me, it's very therapeutic. But I also know that it's really helpful, especially to our boys, you know, to help them really liberate themselves. But if, if, if they can look at somebody who's been through it all and that I can say to them, like, this soft place to land, this love thing over here is much more exciting than the hurt, the harm, the disconnect then it's really important for me to roll the dice on that. And so, and it's not always comfortable. And I can honestly tell you, like, I'm so nervous right now for the book to come out because I'm like, what have I done? Um, oh. But I know it's the right thing.
2: It's going to be so well-received. I'm telling you, it's going to be so well-received because I, I've made a career of being vulnerable. I, I didn't realize this. I a, had a, my first conversation with Brene Brown years ago, mm. you know, who is our vulnerability queen in America now. But I recognize that my willingness to be vulnerable in the earlier years of my career and just, you know, that this is my truth, this is my story, is what allowed the audience to see themselves in me. And I can guarantee you, you never go wrong when you speak your truth because there is at least a couple of million other people around the world who've experienced the same thing. One of the letters uh, details your own experience as a black man in America, and I appreciate what you had to say about encountering racism on a near daily basis. You say, it leaves us with a consistent haunting feeling that we're about to be falsely accused, brutalized, or denied opportunities others see as their... Birthright. And you use an example that, you know, as, as a black woman having moved through America and being, you know, successful and not carrying a lot of these fears that I know are really specific to black men, you talk about such a vulnerable moment when you were literally cleaning up puppy poop, we'll say, mm. and recognize, okay, I'll let you tell the story. Because I mean, when I'm reading that story, you know, I've heard I've done many multiple shows on racism. I've talked to, you know, people all over the world about, you know, what it feels like. But that puppy poop moment really struck me as, wow, to walk through life and and, and to have that always hanging over your shoulder. So please share that with
1: our audience. Yes. Yeah, so we we had a, a puppy. Uh, unfortunately, he recently passed, but we got a puppy And, you know, people call them pandemic puppies. I have not had a puppy in years. And, you know, I gave in to Sekou's yearning to have a puppy. And because he's being raised as the only little child, you know, we wanted for him to have a companion. So one night, about two or three in the morning, I'm, I'm literally laying in my bed, Oprah, and I'm smelling something, and I'm like, what is going on? I'm thinking I stepped in some puppy poop before I went to bed. And then I realized that the puppy had had an accident in his crate. And so I'm dragging his crate out in the wee hours of the night, and I get out in the driveway, and I'm getting the water hose, and I'm figuring out where am I going to put him when I clean the crate out, and I'm opening up another crate. And I realize in that moment that I am making a lot of noise. And you have to imagine, I'm not doing this stuff in the most gentle way because I'm I'm annoyed. It's 3 in the morning, I'm cleaning up puppy poop, and I'm sleepy, and... You know, it's just a hot mess. And I have this moment where I'm making noise and it freezes me in my tracks because when I jumped up to take him out, I threw on a hoodie and some jogging pants. Mm. And I'm out here in this driveway and I'm new to this neighborhood. And I freeze up and say to myself, what if one of my neighbors call the police and say that there is a break in? Are the police going to come and see the innocent nature of me cleaning this puppy poop as a homeowner? Or are they going to see me instantaneously as a threat? Are they going to and come my in my with mind guns blazing? My literally went straight to being a threat.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that, that made a huge impression on on me. Thinking that you can't even be in your yard cleaning up puppy poop without thinking what is this going to look like to other people who see this particularly this time of night and i'm in danger what what your what your
1: body sensed was i'm in danger absolutely and one of the things you know i i would say to you know you know i i have incredible you know diverse group of friends and we're able to have just real honest conversations and what i would say to any of my friends you know there's these apps you know, they got multiple different kind about na- the neighborhoods you live in. What I would tell them is if they have any problem understanding those stories, go to the apps and see how many times people are accused of being suspicious. And it's almost categorically people of color. Yep. And, like, that's that dread that we, we live with.
2: You were able to diffuse that once. The story of a police officer who was called when there was a group of black men all together in one place. Can you share that story? You know what I'm talking about, right?
1: Yes, yes. So I I was a part of this exhibit. Uh, I'm actually still a part of the exhibit. It's traveling all over the country called Men of Change. And we were in Cincinnati to kick that off. And on that visit, I came as an ambassador of the exhibit and also this barbershop challenge. And, you know, Roland Martin was there and Jerome Bettis and, you know, the, the people who organized the event. And there was a moment where we were at one of the barbershops and I stepped outside and, you know, we're, so we were celebrating and I see out my peripheral this young white officer walking across the street. And all activity ceases as we turn to him. And I can feel the, just the tenseness of the moment. And I decided to take a step toward him, and I asked him, I said, hey, how can we help you? What's going on? Because he had this look, this puzzled look on his face. And he says to me, oh, man, it's just one of these cars. They just call, say, y'all blocking traffic, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, it's exhausting, you know? And I was like, yeah, it has to be, you know? And so I was like, well, you know, since you're here, you should come in and meet the owners of the barbershop. And he was like, if I walk into there with this uniform on, The party's going to go flat. Everybody's going to leave. And I was like, no, this is the work right here. Like, building with community. And I was like, I was like, Jerome Bettis is in here. You know, and he was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, no, serious, Jerome Bettis is in here. And I went in and got Jerome Bettis. And Jerome Bettis, you know, Super Bowl champion, Hall of Fame football player, native Detroit in my hometown. He comes out, and the officer really... I mean, he converts into a 10-year-old kid. And he's looking at Jerome in awe, and he says to Jerome, if my dad was still here with us, he would be so excited. You were his favorite player. And we all have this moment where the little boy, the dad, and all of us just kind of synergized. Wow. What I learned in that moment is that sometimes, you know, there's opportunities presented to us that allows us to really step forward. And if we are willing to take one step forward, a lot of the animus between people on either side and all over the world, a lot of that stuff goes away when you can just get to the humanity of what it means to be in those moments. And it could have went the complete opposite way. He could have panicked and just called more police back up and then that escalates. And we could have been angry and offensive for being accosted in the first place, and then that could have escalated. But instead, we really just chose to step into each other's humanity and have a beautiful moment.
2: One of the things you believe is that mindfulness is the answer to surviving these kinds of aggressions. And you call it the gateway to reconciliation. Can you explain
1: that? Going back to that moment in the driveway with the puppy, that was my grounding force to bring myself back to presence, to what was actually happening, not what I was imagining could happen, not remembering what has happened to someone else. And I think in these moments, if we bring ourselves to who we are in the experience and where we are in the moment, it deescalates everything because you can recognize that people are just people. And in most cases, we really want the same things out of life at a baseline level. And that's always a grounding force for me is to bring myself back to presence, be in the moment that I'm in, get out of my head. And it's hard to do because we get inundated with these stories so much that it's hard not to think of worst case scenario before you think of the actual scenario right in front of you. And so I just try to bring myself back to that moment over and over again. And it's a practice that I've been doing for a long time How do you teach
2: mindfulness, Shaka, to young people who are in chaotic circumstances similar to your own childhood? I mean, it's not easy for any of us who practice mindfulness, but the more you practice it, I can assure those of you who are listening, the easier it is to literally just go to the present moment, be in the present moment. But how do you teach that to young people who are in chaotic circumstances that you grew up with? In your own childhood, how, 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 how are you now allowing that to be accessible to the sons of society
1: that you're trying to reach? Sometimes it just takes for us to listen to them and to listen without trying to fix it, listen without trying to judge it. And once that relationship is established and built, even in conversation, it's bringing them back to the moment. You know, I have deep, beautiful conversations with young people, and I always just remind them to be in a moment like, you know, don't worry about the phone right now, you know, and sometimes it comes through questioning, like like is that text right there more important than this moment you're in right now where you have an opportunity to ask me anything, and sometimes it's just those little tweaks and those little nudges that really helps them understand the power of being mindful, but it all starts with me just being willing to listen. And, you know, the more that I've learned that, you know, in listening to young people, the easier it is to impart wisdom to them.
2: Yes, because the secret to getting along with anybody in the world, I have learned from all the thousands of interviews and conversations and just paying attention to life, just like you were doing, is that you meet people where they are, which is the big takeaway lesson that you have shared with us in your relationship with Jay, that if you had come home and met him where he was, instead of this idea about where he should be and where you were going and what your hopes and dreams were, if you had just met him where he was, your relationship would be completely different today. And I find that to be true in all relationships. If you can just take your own ego out of it. I say this to my girls. You know, I have all these beautiful girls from South Africa. A lot of them, you know, have become a huge part of my life. We share holidays and things together. And I I said to them from the day they first sat at my table that when you go back home to your particular township or your particular village you don't take this table with you you mm-hmm. walk in the door and you meet your grandmother you meet your aunt you meet your parents you meet your caregivers where they are where mm-hmm. they are so that you don't step in with all of your you know where i've been and what i've seen and what i've done and what you know you 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 ground yourself and are able to Accept people for who they are, where they are, and try to meet them in that frequency and that vibration.
1: Ooh, I like that. Do not take this table with you. That, that's do that's not take hard. this table with you because <laughs> be next book. <laughs> <laughs> do not
2: take right this there. table with you because we're that's sitting hard. around talking about past the truffle salt, and <laughs> right. they, they, they're not interested in that, nor want to hear that, nor. Yeah want to be made to feel like you are somehow superior to them. So meet the people where they are. Absolutely. Meet the people where they
1: are. Absolutely.
2: You write about radical honesty, and I think that this is a practice that benefits everybody. Explain what that means, because radical honesty can be painful, and humans don't want to experience
1: pain. Yes. You know, it's, to me, it means that, we don't leave anything unresolved within ourselves. It means that we're willing to go into the spaces that historically have made us uncomfortable and we're willing to sit in them and to say, hey, this is this is what I felt. You know, when when the book came out, What Happened to You? Like, that book, like, set my soul on fire because I feel like radical honesty starts with that. Like, what actually happened to you? Not, not how do you feel about it, not what do you think about it, but what was the thing. And even in the outer worlds, you know, we hear, you know, especially when it's race or it's gender, it's, you know, oh, we got to have difficult conversations. In my day-to-day work, I tell my colleagues that we don't have to have difficult conversations, but it's imperative that we have honest conversations and that we create space to say exactly what we mean And to hear what other people's mean and what their experiences are. And I think the more we show up in that space and the more we show up in those ways, you know, the closer we get to an authentic lived experience, because I I believe that so many of us live in two places that we just don't control. Uh, The past, which has already happened, and the future, which hasn't arrived, and you know, the more honest we are about those experiences, it just changes um, how we show up in the world. And, you know, my my measure of wherever I'm going is, can I be my authentic self? And if if there's even an inkling that that's not possible, then it's just not a place that I need to be. Wow. One thing that struck me is a letter that you, in which you encouraged C-
2: Sekou to, um, uh, resist when faced with confrontation, even with police. Now, I remember you and I talked about this on a special we did so long ago, COVID, I think it was 2020, when I was speaking to 100 Black fathers. And at the time, you'd written an essay for Medium called Stop Resisting. So what does that look like? Because I know a lot of Black parents in particular are thinking, resistance could get my child killed.
1: Yes, you know, it's, it's a very complex conversation to have yes and as we have these very complex conversations I think it's important to understand that resistance has always been a rallying call for oppressed people and it's just when it's in the hands of a black man who doesn't fit the neat buckled up docile model that's been depicted that it becomes scary. But when I think about, you know, George Floyd specifically, and I think about nine minutes, mm. and what I would want my son to do in that space of time. And what I know my I myself would do in that span of time. And so my argument is always that when we don't resist, we end up dead. When we do resist, we end up dead or arrested. Um, so we have to be thoughtful in how we resist. And sometimes it's just resisting the idea that we are inferior and should be treated in a manner that does not honor our humanity. Sometimes it requires us to organize and to challenge local laws, and whether it's policing or whatever other institutions that are harmful to community. But I just cannot in good faith raise cool without the idea that he should have agency over his body, that he should be treated with the dignity and respect that comes with being a human being, and that he should always fight for justice, first of all, but he should always defend himself in the event that he's being harmed by anybody. And I feel like as his dad, that is my responsibility to ensure that he understands how to do it, why to do it, and when it's necessary to do it. I think you're
2: missing um, yeah. I, th- I think what people are not hearing because I know you and I know how you communicate and deal with other people in the same way that you dealt with that officer. You come to it with a with a with a kind of calm presence even Absolutely. what we've been talking about it. You come to it with a sense of mindful calm presence which is in itself a different kind of energy vibration than people are accustomed to when you hear the word resistance. Resistance you know feels like energetically you are going against so mm-hmm. i think when you're talking about this you have you you, you you in in other conversations i've heard you talk about this you fail to indicate how you're raising your son to be a respectful giving gracious person so he is not going to approach it from just like walking into a space and automatically resisting Absolutely. You write about how the sexual abuse that you experienced warped your views on sex, masculinity, and relationships, and how it wasn't even until many years later that you even realized it was sexual abuse. I want to know what you want people to understand about what happened to you and to so many other young men who grew up in your similar circumstances.
1: That's a great question. And I think that particular chapter was one of the hardest chapters for me to write. You know, when I was growing up, I was first introduced to the world of sex, sexual intimacy, when I was selling drugs and hanging out with the older homies. And they basically told me to go out and get oral sex from a woman who they had paid in crack to perform. And it didn't feel like I had a choice to say no, or that I can say to them, I don't have any experience. I'm still a virgin. And I don't want this experience to happen. I felt the weight and the pressure of being one of the boys, being one of the fellas. And I ended up going through and following through with it. And I felt the entire experience was disgusting and dehumanizing but it also created this complex reality because there was pleasure as well and then the way that it was celebrated reinforced this idea that it was okay that i was 13 14 years old and that this woman was a grown woman and that somehow made me not only a man but made me the man and that pattern like, repeated uh, itself like a conqueror like,
2: like a conqueror like it's revealed. yeah like a conqueror yeah mm
1: mm-hmm. And that process repeated itself with other adult women while I was still a teenage boy to the point where I normalized it and began to seek out older women and, you know, talk to them until we were being sexually intimate. And it wasn't until I began to mature and grow and question things, you know, as I was in prison... That I realized how perverse and how sick it was. And what I also realized is that the protective barrier that we desire for young girls, we don't have that same desire for young boys. Right. And in fact, we encourage young boys to, you know, do everything but be protected in that space. And over the years, I talked to so many other men, then I'd be like, when was your first experience? Uh, I used to host these conversations at my home uh, with women and men present, and I would ask them to go around the room, and all of their experiences were very young and oftentimes with older women who were family members or aunts and babysitters. But it was always said in a way that was bragging. Yeah. And I was guilty of that as well. I would brag like, yeah, this is who I was back then, and et cetera. Um, but as I began to mature into a man and began to really understand the innocence of a 13-year-old, or 14-year-old, and how tiny these boys are and how we just discard their innocence so easily. And, you know, when I think about Sekou, I want to put that protective barrier around him but also inform him in a way that he really understands how precious his body is and that he can show up with the understanding of, you know, his body should not be mistreated or abused because somebody else tells you it's cool.
2: What struck me about your sharing and being so vulnerable about your own um, abuse as a 14-year-old boy and then being lauded as the conqueror is that we as society, as you just just said, we applaud young boys and young men for doing it. and then when they take that perverse way of treating women or being treated by older women and reenact it and manifested in their lives by mistreating women, we then call them dogs. Well he ain't nothing but a dog. Yeah, and I respect for women, you yeah, know, no, no. which is so interesting because 10 years prior, you, you, you're saying, hey, go, man, you're, you're you're you are the man, as you just said.
1: Absolutely.
2: And how and distorting that, is yeah. that in the mind of, 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 of a man? Like you're first, you're you're the conqueror. You're the man because you could get it. And now when you get it, I mean, you know, it must be very
1: confusing. It is so confusing because, you know, it sets up a very unhealthy situation to where women become objectified because oftentimes right. in those teenage boys adult relationships because they're clandestine they're very transactional yep and that's the part that I think people miss it's not this just that you know we're being sexually intimate with adult women is that it's also very clandestine And so that sets up a very transactional reality. And if that's, you know, your first introduction to sexual intimacy and you don't have any other frame of reference, how do you get to a point where you recognize how detached that is from like your emotional development?
2: Yeah. How do you get to a point where you actually understand what true intimacy is or falling in love and having sex as a part of that whole process. I mean, yes, that's that's why it's so important that you raise this in in this book. Yeah. That's what your vulnerability has done and hopefully will go beyond our conversation to many conversations because I was really struck by that.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that that we just kind of open that conversation up and I think if we can get to that radical honesty right there and call a thing a thing I think that's when we're going to see some real healing taking place in our community.
2: Yeah, you're right about that. And Shaka, when the reader has finished the final page of Letters to the Son of Society where you talk about being enough and letting it be enough, what do you want ultimately? What's your dream intention and goal for people to walk away with the feeling and spirit of what you've poured your soul into?
1: My dream for this book and the way it resonates and lands with people is for us to truly be seen, for dads to be seen, for sons to be seen, for the narrative to be expanded to include all of who we are, for people to look at the men in their lives different, for the men in their lives to look at their fellow man different. You know, to open up to love and vulnerability, you know, I really just hope it enriches the conversations around parenting, uh, around, you know, emotional vulnerability, love, honesty, you know. And, and, and that when it's all said and done, people walk away feeling liberated uh, from the things that have held them hostage over time.
2: Wow. Thank you, Shaka Sinkur. Thank you for sharing your lived experience and how you made it to the other side. What a beautiful gift to all parents and children to learn from. Letters to the Sons of Society is available now everywhere books are sold. And you can download the audio version, too, with Shaka's voice, where you can hear Shaka's story (laughs) from his own voice. So thank you all for listening. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
2: I hope you all will join us for part two as we go soul to soul with Shaka Sankor. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
0: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every
1: time. Because messes happen. Because...